Welcome to News of the Times. This podcast is aimed for those with a passion for history and the human story. Through actual news articles of our past, I review the social media stories of their day, touching upon the lives, trends and world of the everyday person. I am Robin Coles and this is News of the Times. News of the Times. The Time, 1789 to 1791. The Headlines. Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger introduces a Regency Bill to Parliament so that the Prince of Wales may act as Regent for his father George III during a period of mental illness. But the King recovers before the bill becomes law. Catherine Murphy, a counterfeiter, becomes the last woman in Britain to suffer a sentence of death by burning, although she in practice was strangled before being burnt. Fletcher Christian leads a mutiny on HMS Bounty against Captain William Blythe in Polynesia. Mutiny on the Bounty survivors include Captain William Blythe and 18 others, and they reached Timor after nearly a 4,000-mile journey in an open boat. The alleged London monster is arrested in London. He is found guilty of 10 assaults from which he receives 40 years. The first issue of The Observer, the world's first Sunday newspaper, is published. In Paris, an estimated 150,000 of 600,000 residents are out of work. George Washington is unanimously elected the first President of the United States. The French Revolution begins with the storming of the Bastille. The American Bill of Rights comes into effect. Holy Roman Empire forces recapture Brussels, bringing an end to the short-lived United States of Belgium and restoring the Austrian Netherlands. The Hawkesbury and Nepean Wars begin in New South Wales, Australia, as a result of deterioration in relations and increasing colonisation. Our headline story from the Chester Chronicle, May 1790. The Petticoat Monster The following incident, which happened the other night in some measure, shows the advantage which the public are likely to reap by the clamour about monsters. A German who fills the office of baker to a sugar house on College Hill in Thames Street, after much consideration on the subject of monster and taking on at the same time the glorious idea that a much honour and a hundred pounds would be the reward for his heroism, began to execute a plan 
for detecting the monster which he thought infallible. This was to dress himself as a woman and parade the streets in hopes of being stabbed. For this purpose he applied to the master's cook, and informing her that he wished to pass for a modest and beautiful woman, she willingly consented to lend him her best clothes, not doubting but what she wore would render him a delectable object in the eyes of the monster. Behold our baker, then refined into a most delicate and beautiful creature, such as none but a monster would attack, sighing forth in quest of such an attack. But alas, how much easier it is to manage sugar-pans than petticoats! Very early in his perambulations, meeting with a sober citizen and his wife, unwilling to give way on the pavement, notwithstanding his character as a beautiful and modest lady, should have secured him the wall, he got entangled in his petticoats, and down he fell against the woman. Her husband, in the most ungallant manner, considering the beauteous object at his feet, cried out, "'You damned, drunken old whore! Can't you see?' "'I beg your pardon. Damn the narrow pavement!' cried the sugar-baker in a tone and accent so very masculine and monstrous that the wife burst out. "'Oh, that's the wretch who cuts the women!' The husband seizes him by the throat, calls the watch, and, of course, the mob. Our poor Quixote is now at the entire mercy of a set of inhuman wretches who tore his clothes by piecemeal. And the more he endeavoured to explain in his broken German, the more they were convinced that the real monster was now found, adding how glad they were to find he was a foreigner. I, says one, I knew he could not be an Englishman. From the Bath Chronicle and Weekly Gazette, June 1790, The Monster Detected There have been many who denied the existence of the ruffian described under this appellation, and who even raised a smile at what they termed his imaginary cruelties. He is, however, at length apprehended, and, there being scarcely a doubt of his identity, he will suffer the punishment due to his crimes. He was seen on Sunday evening in St. James's Park, and though in a different dress from those he usually had worn, was pointed out to her friends by one of the ladies whom he had wounded. He was pursued and instantly taken into custody. He was examined yesterday at Bow Street with no less than five of the ladies who he had wounded. The two Miss Porters, two Miss Bohans, and a Miss Anne Frost, and swore positively and without hesitation that he was the person who had assaulted and stabbed them, with all the atrocious and aggravating circumstances which have been so frequently related. When speaking of a culprit of this uncommon description, the public curiosity will of course desire to know what were his habits, and what the connections of this man who has deviated so far from the common track of guilt, 
whose sullen and ferocious appetites have degraded him beneath brute, and who have thrown the rancour of a demon when he selected weak and unprotected beauty as the origin and object of his mischief. His name is Rhenish Williams. He lived a few years since, we understand, with Mr. Gallini, a clerk or apprentice. He has since substituted by adorning that sex so many of whom have suffered by his unmanly violence. He has been an artificial florist. He is son, as we learn, of an apothecary who some years before lived in Broad Street of Carnaby Market. His habits on inquiry were by no means such as to justify his character or to rescue him from his present charge. He had lodgings in German Street where he frequently slept with different men, whom he said himself he did not know. The prisoner was fully committed for trial. It was found a matter of no small difficulty and delay to remove him to Newgate on account of the vast multitudes who attended, and whom, if such precautions had not been adopted, would certainly have taken into their own hands the summary execution of justice. Advertisement from the Stamford Mercury, March 1790. Thomas Colton, butcher, nearly opposite the King's Arms, respectfully begs leave to inform the nobility, gentry, and public in general that he has now on sale a very large assortment of the following articles of his own curing. Flitches of bacon without bone, with or without smoke. Hams with or without smoke. Finest parts of pig's cheeks. Hogs lard in bladders. Calves cheese lips. And ready-made rennet for making cheese in small quantities. From a Scots magazine, March 1790, the story of Captain Blythe. At daybreak on the 28th, the cabin of Captain Bligh, who commanded the bounty, was forcibly entered by the officer of the watch, assisted by three others upon the watch, who dragged him instantly on the deck, menacing his life if he attempted to speak. His endeavours to exhort and bring back the conspirators to their duty proved of no avail. Each of the desperadoes was armed with a drawn cutlass or fixed bayonet, and all their muskets were avowed to be charged. Captain Bligh discovered, when he came upon deck, several of the crew and most of the officers pinioned, and while he was thus contemplating their perilous state, the ship's boat was let over her side, and all who were not on the part of the conspirators, the number of eighteen, beside the captain, were committed to the boat, and no other nourishment afforded to them than about one hundred and forty pounds of bread, thirty pounds of meat, one gallon and a half of rum, a like portion of wine, and a few gallons of water. A compass and quadrant were secured by one of those devoted victims as he was stepping into the boat, and thus abandoned. The mutineers 
having given them a cheer, stood away as they laid off for Tahiti. The captain in this dreadful situation found his boatswain, carpenter, gunner, surgeon's mate, two midshipmen and one mailer's mate, with Mr. Nelson the botanist and a few inferior officers among those who were likely to share his fate. After a short consultation, it was deemed expedient to put back to the friendly islands, and accordingly they landed on one of these in hopes they might improve their small stock of provisions. But they were driven off by the natives two days after, and pursued with such hostility that one man was killed and several wounded. It was then deliberated whether they should return to Tahiti and throw themselves on the clemency of the natives, but the apprehension of falling with the bounty determined them with one assent to make best their way to Timor, and, to effect this enterprise astonishing to relate, they calculated the distance near 4,000 miles, and, in order that their wretched supply provisions might endure till they reached the place of destination, they agreed to apportion their food to one ounce of bread and one gill of water a day for one man. No other nourishment did they receive till the 5th or 6th of June, when they made the coast of New Holland and collected a few shellfish, and with this scanty relief they held on their course to Timor which they reached on the 13th, having been 46 days in a crazy open boat, too confined in dimensions to suffer any of them to lie down for repose, and without the lead awning to protect them from the rain which almost incessantly fell for 40 days. A heavy sea and equally heavy weather for the great part of the curse augmented their misery. The governor of this settlement which belongs to the Dutch afforded them every succour they required. They remained here to recruit their strength and spirits till the 20th of August, when they procured a vessel to carry them to Batavia. They reached Batavia on the 2nd of October last, and from thence Captain Bly and two of the crew embarked for the Cape of Good Hope, and the rest of the crew were preparing to follow as soon as a passage could be obtained. Captain Bly reached the Cape about the middle of December, and soon after took his passage to England, which reached on the evening of the 13th of March, and arrived in London on the 14th. The leaders of the mutineers is named Fletcher Christian, a man of respectable family and connections, and considered a good seaman. He was the rank of master's mate on the bounty, and served regularly the watch from the time ship sailed from England. The command of the bounty thus devolving upon, there was no possibility of defeating his purpose, as not the least previous circumstance could be traced, from testimonies of the faithful part of the crew, after they were in the boat, of a mutiny being afoot. The mutineers were the number of twenty-five, and those who remained firm to their duty, nineteen. Consequently, 
had the slightest suspicion been entertained of the design, it might have been easily frustrated, as all the principal officers remained faithful to their commander. A conjecture not improbable is that the plot was projected while Captain Bly was engaged on shore in Tahiti and other islands, collecting plants and making charts. This officer only holds the rank of lieutenant to our navy. His merit pointed him out to the Admiralty as highly qualified for this expedition, and the distress he has undergone entitles him to every reward. In navigating his little skiff through so dangerous a sea, his seamanship appears as matchless as the undertaking seems beyond the verge of probability. From the Bath Chronicle and Weekly Gazette, March 1790. Warning to snuff-takers. From late depositions relating to the fraud of tobacconists, it appears that rotten and useless tan purchased from the pits of tanners and the hot houses of gardeners is a chief ingredient in the rapé snuff. Remember this, ye snuff-takers. From the Stamford Mercury, March 1790. John Holmes. There is now living in Whitecroft, Sheffield, one John Holmes, thought to be the only survivor of those intrepid adventurers who accompanied the late Lord Anson around the world. He is at this time in his eightieth year, lingering out the painful conclusion of a life, the vigour of which was devoted to the service of his country in the most miserable and distressing poverty. The small pittance allowed him being barely sufficient to preserve him from perishing with hunger. During the twenty-eight years he spent at sea, he made thirteen voyages to the Indies, eleven to the west and two to the east. Exclusive of that celebrated circumnavigation, the particulars of which he even yet has pleasure in relating. So retentive is his memory, notwithstanding his long confinement to bed, that he has perfectly recollected the names and situation of every island they touched at in traversing the vast Pacific Ocean, and with the true spirit of a sailor gives an animated and circumstantial account of the gallant action in which he bore a part between the ship Centurion and the rich Spanish galleon, the capture of which will be long remembered. Advertisement for sale. Extinct peerage of the two kingdoms. With the forfeited and dormant titles, the whole forming the most perfect and particular account of their origin, progress and existing state of the families of the present nobles and their honours. London printed for G. Curley, number 46 Fleet Street, and sold by all the booksellers and news carriers in town and country. From the Bath Chronicle and Weekly Gazette, March 1790. Philip V, King of Spain. It has often been related and generally believed that King Philip V, King of Spain, being seized with a total dejection of spirit, 
which made him refuse to be shaved and rendered him incapable of attending council or transacting affairs of state. The Queen, who had in vain tried every common expedient that was likely to contribute to his recovery, determined that an experiment should be made of the effects of music upon the king. Her husband, who was extremely sensible to its charms. Upon the arrival of Ferellini, of whose extraordinary performance an account had been transmitted to Madrid from several parts of Europe, but particularly from Paris, Her Majesty contrived that there should be a concert in a room adjoining to the King's apartment, in which this singer performed one of his most captivating songs. Philip appeared at first surprise, then moved, and at the end of the second air made the virtuoso enter the royal apartment, loading him with compliments and caresses, asking him how he could sufficiently reward such talents, assuring him that he could not refuse him anything. Farolini, previously instructed, only begged that his majesty would permit his attendants to shave and dress him, and that he would endeavour to appear in council as usual. From this time the king's disease gave way to medicine, and the singer had all the honour of the cure. By singing to his majesty every evening, his favour increased to such a degree that he was regarded as first minister. But what is still more extraordinary, instead of being intoxicated or giddy with his elevation, Farolini, never forgetting that he was a musician, behaved to the Spanish nobles about the court with such humility and propriety that instead of envying his favour, they honoured him with their esteem and their confidence. From the Hampshire Chronicle, January 1790, on Wednesday the 10th, an inquest was taken by Mr. Johnson of Petworth at the house of Mrs. Bookham, the half-moon at North Chapel in this county, on the body of Noah Mann, the famous cricketer, who, on the preceding Monday, was burnt to death, being very much intoxicated. He could not be prevailed on either to leave the house or go to bed. In consequence, he laid down in the middle of the kitchen, and as there was very little fire, he thought it quite safe. However, in the night, Mrs. Bookham's son, hearing a noise, went to see the cause and found this unfortunate man all in flame. The young man, in endeavouring to extinguish the flames, was so terribly burnt that he now lays dangerously ill. From the Stamford Mercury, March 1790, Assize Intelligence. At Derby, John Glifford, for sheep-stealing, and Robert Jackson, alias Wall, for housebreaking, received sentences of death. His lordship informed the prisoners they had no reason to expect any mercy. George Ward and Joseph Bevans, alias Fine George, were found guilty of robbing the shop of Dorothy Taylor and Mary Thorne of Burton-upon-Trent, milliners, and ordered to be transported 
seven years. At Nottingham, William Sudler and John Nix for sheep stealing, Benjamin Taylor for housebreaking, and Samuel Martin and Anthony Farnsworth for burglarous breaking open a dwelling house and warehouse of Mr. John Hurd of Nottingham and stealing therein various articles of hosiery, received sentences of death. The last two were left for execution. Farnsworth is only 17 years of age. You've been listening to the News of the Times, 1789 to 1791. And I am Robin Coles. Thank you for listening to News of the Times. New episodes incorporating a new span of time from history will be updated weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and subscribe. You can also check out our sister channel, Simply Stories, found on all your favourite podcast apps.